This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. The American Tapestry Project seeks to weave together the many stories of America into, into a tapestry of American possibilities, into the tapestry of America's ever-expanding definition of the we in its founding documents. The we who holds these truths to be self-evident, the we who are the people seeking, seeking a more perfect union. Today we're going to look at two issues central to the project's story of an ever more inclusive America. At first, you might think them unrelated, but they touch deeply upon the subject of freedom's fault lines, how those first excluded from the American promise, how those first excluded sought inclusion by appealing to America's foundational values. The topics, the topics are voting rights and American sports, sports as an engine of social progress. That's today on the American Tapestry Project. Did you vote in the last election? If not, why not? As former Attorney General Eric Holder demonstrates in his Our Unfinished March, The Violent Past and Imperiled Future of the Vote, A History, A Crisis, A Plan, those are not idle questions. Did you vote? If not, why not? People have died, literally, to secure that right. Why? Because the right to choose is the fundamental right in the democracy and choice is exercised by voting. And if that right is lost, American democracy dies with it. Holder believes current voter suppression initiatives and partisan gerrymandering threaten that right. As Holder says, America now confronts a crisis unlike any we've faced since the signing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. American democracy is on the brink of collapse. Why? Because, as throughout our history, we once again are faced with the question, whose votes will we count? Who gets to vote has always been a contested terrain in America. Why? Because voting is power. Who holds power has always been contested. As Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Voting is the essence of citizenship. It is not the privilege of a few, but the right of all. With the right to vote, one is fully a citizen. One has a portion of the power that undergirds a polity. Without it, one is at best a spectator. At worst, one is merely a subject. Something less than a citizen, subject to the dictates of those who would rule. More than a right, it is a citizen's duty to vote. Along with respecting the U.S. Constitution, serving in the military and on juries, Voting is listed as one of a citizen's responsibilities in the United States government's A Guide to Naturalization. If voting is the essence of citizenship and a citizen's duty, why has America historically made it hard to vote? And, make no mistake, America has historically made it hard to vote. First, by restricting who could vote. 
then and now by making it complicated and difficult to vote. How? Well, by requiring that one must first register at a date and location different from the site of actual voting. Not to mention more egregious, what an understatement, not to mention more egregious historic voter suppression tactics involving violence and intimidation, and by restricting elections to Tuesdays when most voters have to be at work. Nonetheless, between 2002 and 2022 in federal elections, American voter turnout has averaged 51.4%, with a median turnout of 50.3%. So, despite obstacles, one in two Americans managed to fulfill their duty. The highest turnout was in 2020 at 66.7%, or two out of every three eligible voters voted, and the lowest was 36.7% in 2014, slightly more than one in three eligible voters voted. In the most recent election, in 2022, Erie County, Pennsylvania voters did slightly better than the national numbers. Nationally, 46.8% of eligible voters turned out. Possibly spurred by a gubernatorial and senatorial races, Erie Countyans turned out at a 59.6% clip, almost 60%. Three out of five Erie Countyans voted. With eligible voter turnout hovering around a rate of 50%, maybe the United States should do as they do in Australia, as they do in Australia and 31 other countries. Make voting compulsory. Under Australia's Commonwealth Electoral Act of 1918, it is the duty of every voter to vote at each election. Voting means it is the actual duty of the elector to attend a polling place, have their name marked off the certified list, receive a paper ballot and take it to an individual voting booth, mark it, fold the ballot, and place it in the ballot box. Australian turnout typically reaches over 90%. The Australians accomplish this high turnout rate by using both sticks and carrots. The sticks consist of fines of up to 80 Australian dollars for failing to vote. The carrots consist of several things, of which three are most important. First, Election Day in Australia is a holiday. It always occurs on a Saturday, and it results in community barbecues, of which Australians are famously fond. Although I think Eric Holder would agree that making Election Day a holiday and holding it on Saturdays are good ideas, making voting compulsory sends the wrong message. It implies that low voter turnout is the fault of the voters, when, in fact, both historically and currently lower voter turnout results from a system that makes it hard to exercise, as Frederick Douglass would have called it, the elective franchise, one's duty as a citizen to vote. To repeat my earlier question, why has America historically made it so hard to vote? Well, that's an old story. It relates directly to our The American Tapestry Project. Seeking to discover the story of America, the American tapestry realizes that there is no one American story, but instead a tapestry of American stories that, when woven together, are the story of America. That story has many threads, but, as Holder illustrates, the tapestry's theme tells the story of Americans seeking to master the challenge of self-governance, all the while continuously increasing the inclusiveness of the we 
as we said earlier, the we in we the people in America's founding documents. That theme emerges in several sub-themes, freedom at home and abroad, freedom's fault lines, tales of race and gender, and the immigrant's tale. The latter two, in particular, tell the stories of those first excluded from the rights, privileges, and benefits of American citizenship, fighting for inclusion by patriotically appealing to America's founding documents' foundational values. The Declaration of Independences, We Hold These Truths, the U.S. Constitutions, In Order to Make a More Perfect Union, its Bill of Rights, subsequent amendments, and the great Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s, extending the benefits of full citizenship to a more and more inclusive America. As Holder says of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, it expanded the definition of we the people to include African Americans once and for all. Those threads, those themes, however, are subsumed within two competing macro-threads. One, as you weavers who've listened to this series over the years, one I originally called the Protean Thread, a story of America's continuing development, and the other, the Essentialist Thread, a story that sees America as static and fixed in its original socio-cultural contours. Later, I came to understand that the two threads are really stories of inclusion and exclusion. The inclusive American story sees America as in a perpetual state of becoming, as it seeks to perfect self-government, while at the same time welcoming all people into its embrace. It's the story of black Americans, women and immigrants of all nationalities and hues, becoming, becoming fully American. The other, the exclusive story, sees America as a white, Christian, patriarchal nation reserved only for those who look, think, and worship like them. The current renewed struggle for voting rights and for the rights of full citizenship exposes these two stories' historic competition for the soul of America. For, if freedom means the right to choose, if full citizenship means choosing America's future by exercising the right to vote, then... As Holder says, reflecting upon the historic march for voting rights in Selma, Alabama on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, well then, our current debates about voting rights presents Americans with a stark choice between these two competing visions, these two competing visions about what America means. I doubt Eric Holder listens to the American Tapestry Project, but he succinctly summarizes its challenge. Americans can choose to continue down the inclusive story's path to an America defined by pluralism, where everyone's voice is heard, where everyone's vote is counted, and everyone's interests are represented. Or, America can choose the path that leads to an America where the political and racial apartheid we had worked so hard to overcome in 1965 would reemerge where suppression would once again rear its ugly head and lock millions out of the polls, where a minority party that doesn't represent the interests or the desires of the people would hold on to power by rigging the system in its favor. Voting rights and the renewed struggle to maintain the rights so arduously earned a half century ago, well, that's all about choosing which of these two Americas America will be. That question is sometimes framed as yet another question. Is America a democracy or not? Some, seeking to thwart the will of the people, argue that it is a republic. 
Others seek a pure democracy in which, by plebiscite and referendum, the people directly decide the issues of the day. In our public opinion poll-driven politics, we've come, we've come perilously close to the latter. No, it's more subtle than that false choice. Recalling James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, and the Art of Compromise, America is a democratic republic in which the people's democratically, freely chosen representatives decide the issues of the day. The key words in that sentence are democratically, freely chosen. The ability to choose implies that one is free and one exercises one's freedom democratically. Because, since at least the 5th century B.C. in Greece, democracy literally means rule by the people. Or, in Abraham Lincoln's famous phrasing, a government of, by, and for the people. So, democracy means rule by the people. How do the people rule? The people rule by voting. In his Our Unfinished March, Holder takes us on a tour of the history of American voting. The current voter suppression efforts attempting to roll back the voting rights gained, gained after passage of 1965's Voting Rights Act, and what can be done to protect those rights. A literal library has been written telling the story of American voting, but a good place to start is Alexander Kaiser's The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States. For a quick survey of the many different ways Americans have voted, from voice vote to putting up one's hand to standing up and being counted to the ballot to the secret ballot to voting machines, see Jill Lepore's Rock, Paper, Scissors in The New Yorker, October 6, 2008. Just enter into your search engine of choice, How We Used to Vote, slash The New Yorker. In his American Democracy Was Never Designed to be Democratic, Louis Menon takes you on a very readable, short history of the question, is America a democracy, a republic, a democratic republic, or something else? Once again, using your search engine of choice, it can be found at American Democracy Was Never Designed to be Democratic. The history of voting in America is the history of the ever-expanding definition of the we in our founding documents. It's the essence of the inclusive story. The Naturalization Act of 1790 limited citizenship to free white people. Note, not all white people. It excluded indentured servants and most recent immigrants, of which there were only a few. And it restricted voting to free white property-owning males. The property qualifications varied among the states. Black Americans, all women, and Native Americans were excluded from the right to vote. Almost immediately, responding to workers and others who had fought in the American Revolution, some states began to see the contradiction in denying the vote to all males. By the Jacksonian Revolution in 1828, most property qualifications had been dropped, and the right to vote extended to almost all white men women were still explicitly excluded. After the Civil War, the 15th Amendment granted black males, but not women, the right to vote. It was almost immediately negated by the rise of the myth of the lost cause, the redemption, the Ku Klux Klan, and Jim Crow laws in the South restricting black Americans' political participation. Beginning with the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott, then throughout the 19th century by Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and others, and 
culminating in the heroic efforts of Alice Paul, Ida B. Wells, and others in the early 20th century, women were finally granted the right to vote on August 26, 1920, with the adoption of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The great civil rights movement of mid-20th century America finally re-enfranchised black Americans with the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The 26th Amendment, passed in 1971, extended the right to vote to all Americans 18 years or older. 1984's Voting Accessibility for the Elderly and Handicapped Act expanded access to polling places for Americans with disabilities. So, by the early 1980s, almost all Americans possessed the right to vote. While the overall trajectory of that story's arc has been to expand inclusiveness by expanding the right to vote, it has not always moved directly forward. At times, it has been stalled. At others, it has been reversed. But, until very recently, the trajectory has been toward a more inclusive America. That is, until 2013 and the Supreme Court's narrow 5-4 decision in Shelby County v. Holder reversing the pre-clearance clause of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The pre-clearance clause required any state with a documented history of racially discriminatory voting regulations, well, it required such states to obtain federal pre-clearance before changing their voting laws and regulations. Writing for the majority, Chief Justice John Roberts in a dazzlingly disingenuous performance, argued that since the 1965 Act had essentially eliminated unconstitutional practices, it was no longer necessary. The court declared that the formula used to determine discriminatory practices, therefore, was unconstitutional. In her dissent, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote, Throwing out pre-clearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like, is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. As Holder, who, yes, is the Holder in Shelby County versus Holder, as Holder points out, Ginsburg was almost immediately vindicated. On the same day as the case was decided, Texas moved forward with a law whose photo ID standards restricted the state's poorest residents from accessing the ballot. Other states soon followed suit, closing over 1,700 polling places, purging voters from the rolls, changing registration requirements, and closing both registration and election offices. Why is this happening? Why in the third decade of the 21st century, after over 50 years of comparatively open access to the elective franchise, are Americans again in multiple states, including Pennsylvania, confronted with the voter suppression movements? The answer to that question has two parts. One, historically, the right to vote in America has always been contested ground. Ask any member of the League of Women Voters. The flashpoint, however, was the 2008 election of the first African-American president in American history. It proved, and continues to prove, that the election of Barack Obama to the American presidency did not signal the arrival of a post-racial America. No, it signaled to some the need to marshal the forces in support of disenfranchising black, poor, and otherwise suspect Americans from their right to vote. Or, as any number of right-wing politicians have muttered, we'll never win another election. As a result, 
Hey, presto, the rise of the Tea Party, voter suppression movements, and the reignition of the culture wars pitting the inclusive and exclusive American stories in competition for America's future. Why voter suppression? It's simple, actually. For any given political espousing the exclusionary American story, it's job protection. More generally, reduce and or eliminate inclusionary Americans from voting and you ensure, or at the minimum, greatly increase the probability that the exclusionary white Christian patriarchal ethno-nationalist story will prevail. Or, if not prevail, will still possess the levers of governmental power controlling what America will be and how Americans will behave. What have those voter suppression tactics looked like? As Holder documents in great detail, they come in two buckets. One, laws and regulations designed to reduce the number of voters, in particular minority voters, and two, laws designed to ensure that elections elect the right people, that is, gerrymandering. Regarding laws and regulations designed to suppress voting, a partial list includes requiring a driver's license to vote. Problem, not everyone drives or has a license. Requiring a photo ID to vote. Problem, since most photo IDs are driver's licenses. See above. If states are going to require photo IDs to vote, then they should provide them for free and make getting them easy. If a local legislator in your area is promoting a voter ID law, ask if the ID will be provided free and made easily accessible. How the legislator answers will tell you if they believe in expanding American freedom or reserving it for only a few. Other voter suppression tactics include Texas's banning the use of student ID cards for voting, reducing and or eliminating early voting, partisan voter registration rolls purges, limiting the time period for registering to vote, closing and or moving registration and election offices, and voting sites to inconvenient locations. Regarding the latter, last summer at the Chautauqua Institution, during one of my Rhodes Scholars seminars, a woman from St. Petersburg, Florida, told me of her surprise when she went to go to the election office to change her address and discovered it had been closed. She had to drive across Tampa Bay to re-register. For the record, she was a white woman who told me she has always voted Republican, but her experience opened her eyes to the reality of voter suppression for many poor people in St. Petersburg, who are disproportionately people of color, could not easily make that trip. Still other voter suppression tactics include disqualifying provisional ballots, reducing and or eliminating voting by mail, reducing the number of vote-by-mail drop boxes, as Texas did, allowing only one per county, which in Harris County's site of Houston creates a rather large problem. Other tactics include reducing who can deliver mail-in and absentee ballots on behalf of a voter and outlawing giving water to folks waiting in line to vote, as Georgia did. The latter sounds silly until you realize with fewer polling places, that lines and waits will be longer. Briefly, gerrymandering goes back to the earliest days of the Union and Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts. 
Jerry invented the tactic of drawing electoral maps to get the results the party in power wanted. One map he drew resembled a salamander, hence the new word gerrymander. Gerrymandering achieves its goal in one or both of two ways, by either packing or cracking districts. Packing a district means drawing lines so that one's party's supporters represent an insured majority. On a more sophisticated level, it can mean packing all of the opposing party supporters in a super district, ensuring their victory there, but leaving surrounding districts tilted to your own party. Cracking means literally what it says, cracking a district into two or more parts. Erie County was cracked after the 2010 redrawing of congressional maps. Superficially, it means Erie County now has two congressional representatives. In practice, it has none because its vote is split in two, almost ensuring that no Erie Countyan represents it in Congress. What's to be done? Well, according to Holder, three things, two tactical and the other strategic. At the tactical level, it means making it easier to vote and fixing our institutions to be more democratic. In particular, the anti-democratic electoral college, the gerrymandered House of Representatives, and the Supreme Court. Making it easier to vote includes automatic voter registration. How? Register every American to vote when they turn 18. How? Males still have to register for the draft, so the precedent is set. Every time a person interacts with the government, their data would be updated and they would be added to their home county's voter rolls. Updating the information every time a person interacted with the government would also make the voter registration records more accurate. This should be coupled with same-day registration. That is, all you have to do is show up at the polls with proof you live in the district and sign up to vote on the spot. In addition, 16 and 17-year-olds ought to be allowed to pre-register so that when they are 18, they can vote immediately. Lastly, holders suggest the entire system ought to be brought online. Some will howl that online registration and voting opens the door to cheating, but many, most, Many people bank online, manage their investments online, shop online, and do myriad other data-sensitive activities online. Yes, there are hazards, but banks and other institutions have demonstrated that online activity can be made secure. Failing bringing the electoral process online, then in-person voting should be made easier by opening more polling locations so that voters do not have to travel long distances to exercise their right to vote. If you think this is not a problem, I refer you back to the woman I met at Chautauqua last summer. And finally, if we're going to insist on voting in person, in addition to making it convenient with more locations, we should, as the Australians do, make Election Day a national holiday. I'd go a step further than Holder and move it to Saturday. Or, better, make it a three-day weekend with electioneering on Saturday and Sunday and voting on Monday. Another three-day weekend engaging in that most patriotic of activities, politics and voting. Although far too complex for a short summary, Holder's vision for fixing our institutions involves eliminating the filibuster in the Senate, 
adopting the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, NVPIC, in which each state would agree that its electors to the Electoral College would vote for the candidate who received the most votes across the country. In short, it would transform the Electoral College into a vehicle for a national presidential election. It would also eliminate some future president from attempting another coup by subverting the Electoral College process. It would also require candidates to campaign nationally and not just in so-called key battleground states. Holder's recommendation for the Supreme Court is term limits of 18 years for each justice, ensuring that every president would get to nominate two Supreme Court justices. As a result, Supreme Court justices would no longer have lifetime sinecures and the ability to time their retirement to fit the politics of the moment. What's Holder's strategy to make all of this happen? Well, he doesn't get into the messy details, but he brings his book to an end with an exhortation to those who believe in the inclusive American story to remember that the arc of American history, snarled as it sometimes gets, nonetheless bends towards justice and a more and more inclusive meaning to the we in America's founding documents. But it doesn't get there on its own. It requires courage, dedication, and hard work on the part of its adherents. It means to remember, to borrow a cliché from New Hampshire's license plates, live free or die, and another from any of many patriotic gatherings, freedom isn't free. Hopefully, it won't cost you your life, like it did Medgar Evers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner. Hopefully, you won't have to stand outside the White House for over a year or suffer forced feeding and imprisonment like Alice Paul and other suffragists. Hopefully, it will only cost you some time and effort, the time to work with local groups seeking a more just America by working to protect voting rights for all, and the effort to get up and, as the Nike ad exhorts, just do it and make your voice heard. So just do it. Work for a better America by working to protect the voting rights of all Americans, but most importantly, vote. Picking up on John Fogarty telling the coach to put him in, let's pivot and turn to another topic impacting the American tapestry, sports in America. As important as voting is, more people pay more attention to sports than they do politics. If voting average is around 50%, it trails avid interest in sports by almost a third for something around 75% of all Americans claim to be sports fans. Are sports America's new religion? if not religion in the theological sense, then are Sports America's new, new civil religion. However one answers that question, one can't ignore the reality that sports saturate American society. 
Whether as spectators or participants, Americans are passionate about sports. Speaking of spectators, did you watch the Super Bowl this year? If you did, you were one of 113 million viewers in the second largest television audience in American history. In fact, of the top 10 TV programs of all time, not the best, but the highest rated, the ones with the most viewers, the top 10 TV programs of all time, the first nine are all Super Bowls. Sitting at number 10, only the final episode of MASH, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, in February 1983, cracks the list. Sports participation is nearly universal. Among children 6 to 12 years old, 78% participate in team sports and, allowing for overlap, 52.3% participate in individual sports. 76% of Americans identify as sports fans. All of that consumer participation and spectatorship boosts the economy by at least $100 billion per year, with more than half of that spent on attending games. That $100 billion does not include the economic impact of investments in stadiums, equipment, media presentations, media revenues, player salaries, and a myriad of other variables. Sports, in all its incarnations, is a trillion-dollar industry within America's $21.4 trillion economy. America, America indeed, is a sports-saturated society. It was not always this way. While sports are ancient, ranging from the ancient Greek Olympics to Roman gladiatorial combat to medieval jousting tournaments to the peasantry of virtually all societies engaging in rudimentary ball games to indigenous people's games of racing, hunting, etc. In America, widespread citizen participation in sports, running aerobics, commercial health clubs, etc. is a phenomenon of the past 50 years. In many ways, it's one of the more positive, if arcane, spin-offs of the cultural turbulence of the 1960s and 70s. American organized team sports, particularly at the collegiate and professional level, with their attendant spectatorship, dates only from the middle of the 19th century. Team sports at all levels are an essential component of America's entertainment industry. Sports stars were among the first mass celebrities of America's early 20th century emerging culture of celebrity. Babe Ruth was the first larger-than-life celebrity to become a national icon. In a virtuous circle, all of that sporting activity begot more spectators, which begot more sports, which begot more spectators fueling Americans' passion for sports. Why are Americans so passionate about spectator sports? In particular, why are American men so passionate about spectator sports? Why have they made spectator sports such a fetish? An Episcopal priest, prize-winning historian, and an Emmy Award nominee, and director of the Religion Department at Dartmouth College, Randall Balmer is best known as a historian of America's evangelical movement. His mine eyes have seen the glory, which became a three-part PBS documentary, is a comprehensive study of American evangelicalism. His bad faith, race and the rise of the religious right, debunks what he calls the abortion myth, arguing that race, not abortion, fueled the growth of the religious right. In his passion plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in America, Balmer attempts to answer the question, why does sports invoke such peculiar passion? 
The immediate catalyst for Balmer's interest was his discovery of sports talk radio while living in New York City in the early 1990s. Sports talk radio began in New York in March 1964 with Bill Mazur on WNBC. Emmis Broadcasting's WFAN, FAN, emanating from Queens, New York in 1987, was the first all-sports station. There are now, literally, hundreds and hundreds of all-sports, all-the-time media outlets. Idly listening to sports talk radio, Balmer became fascinated not with the sports themselves, but with the question, why were men, and it was mostly men, why were men so passionate about sports, talking about it for endless hours? As Balmer says, I was utterly dumbfounded that radio hosts could sustain a conversation and a debate for hours and hours about whether or not Joe Torre should have pulled the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth. My observation, not Balmer's, how do radio hosts and listeners parsing each decision and utterance like Talmudic scholars seeking to drain, seeking to drain the significance out of the merest hint hold their audiences? Balmer came to believe that American sports had evolved into a phenomenon that generates at least as much passion as traditional religion and that it is at least arguable that the real locus of popular devotion in North America has shifted from the sanctuary to the stadium. In a short book of less than 200 pages, Balmer attempts to justify that assertion and to answer the question about North Americans, about North Americans' religious passion for sports. He does it by detailing the history of North America's four major spectator sports, baseball, football, ice hockey, and basketball, and a concluding chapter in which he makes a case for his religious metaphor. He's excellent at analyzing the social forces that drove the creation and increasing popularity of each of the four major sports. As we have discussed in previous episodes, the 19th century was a time of rapid social, economic, and political, demographic, and religious change. From the emergence of baseball in the 1840s to the invention of basketball in 1891, North America in the 19th century, well, North America was in transition. As Balmer says, each sport reflected or reacted against the zeitgeist. Baseball in the Industrial Revolution, football in the Civil War, hockey in the formation of the Canadian Confederation, and basketball in urbanization. Of what did that 19th century zeitgeist, a fancy word for spirit of the times or an era's defining characteristics and values, of what did that 19th century American zeitgeist consist? First, a quick note. The rise of organized sport was a middle and upper middle class phenomenon. Only later did working men, minorities, and immigrants gain entry. With that comment in the background, Balmer identifies three key characteristics. The first, and most pervasive, was industrialization, followed by the American Civil War and urbanization in the latter 19th century, creating an urban versus rural divide that still bedevils American society today. Industrialism created great social dislocations and anxieties as the locus of the economy moved from home-based handicapped industries to large-scale manufacturing. Men, and many women in the textile mills of New England left home and farm to work in city-based factories and offices. In broad strokes, this changed the roles of men and women. Women, or at least white, 
middle-class women, reacting to the Victorian-era cult of domesticity, became the sovereigns of their households and the moral guardians of both their families and society. They dominated religious life in America. Fearing that American men working in offices were becoming soft, Protestant church leaders imported the British idea of muscular Christianity, which valorized robust athletic Christians and advocated for rigorous physical exercise as an antidote to the enervating effects of urban life. Muscular Christianity gave rise to the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, that provided both athletic training and a stable home for young men recently arrived in the city. Rejecting the Puritan opposition to sports as frivolous, Protestant leaders recommended a strenuous life marked by athletic pursuits and aggressive, even pugilistic, male behavior. The Roman Catholic's CYO, Catholic Youth Organization, quickly followed. Later in the century, a defeated South adopted football with its military metaphors and the brute violence of the game as a means of restoring Southern manhood's pride. Growing out of the YMCA movement, basketball became the archetypal metaphor for navigating urban life. Nicely avoiding any descent into sports trivia, Balmer traces the rise of the four major North American sports as they emerged out of the cauldron of 19th and 20th century social transformation. Baseball arose as an antidote to the tedium of office and factory. It provided a sense of play. It evolved in metropolitan areas, primarily New York City, but it celebrated bucolic virtues, the greens were to the playing field. It emerged during the Industrial Revolution, but rejected that revolution's primary principle, the organization and regulation of time. Baseball is the only game without a clock. And, while it celebrates its indigenous origins, it embodies and replicates the experience of immigrants and outsiders. Although challenged in the 21st century by basketball, baseball was the immigrant's primary path to cultural assimilation. Football, football arose as an antidote to individualism. Football is quintessentially a team sport in which any individual's success is a result of the coordinated activities of a group in pursuit of a common goal. Taming its original destructive violence, Walter Camp and others noted its affinities with what he called the game of war and the mimic of battles on the gridiron. Its militaristic undertones helps explain its popularity in the South, where, as I mentioned a moment ago, it restored pride to a defeated citizenry. Similarly, Catholic immigrants adopted it as a confirmation of their own rising status in American society. Oh, Canada, our home and native land, true patriot love, in all thy son- Canadian ice hockey arose out of the First Nations game of Bagataway, which the French renamed lacrosse. 
adapted to playing on frozen ponds, whose rounded edges give hockey rinks their rounded corners, hockey became an essential component of Canadian identity as the Canadians, forging the Canadian Federation in the mid-19th century, sought a cultural identity distinct from the British. Basketball, invented by James A. Naismith at the Springfield, Massachusetts YMCA in 1891 as a game that could be played indoors, basketball promoted muscular Christianity to salve the urban transformation. Basketball taught initiative, accuracy, alertness, cooperation, self-confidence, self-sacrifice, self-control. Basketball, Balmer writes, is the quintessential urban game where the object is to maneuver in tight quarters without impeding the movement of others. Any such obstructions, as Naismith stipulated in his 13 rules, would be called a foul. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Women's sports arose as a reaction against the cult of true womanhood. Balmer notes how Naismith opened the Springfield YMCA's gym to women, who in the late 19th century were beginning to become involved in athletics. They were sometimes called bloomer girls because of the trouser-like clothing they wore while bicycling, playing tennis, and other field sports. As women sought their political rights and a life outside the home, sports provided an opening. Physically active women, like Joe in Little Women, were frequently characterized as tomboys. One of the first sports women engaged in was the newfound craze of bicycling. Riding bikes did two things. First, it changed women's apparel. Ankle-length dresses only got caught in the chain, causing no end of annoyance and mishap. Women adopted bloomers, a knicker-like skirt trouser that enabled them to engage in field sports and bicycling. Bike riding also gave women a sense of independence, a taste of freedom captured in this comment by Susan B. Anthony. I'll tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world. I rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. It gives her a feeling of self-reliance and independence the moment she takes her seat, and away she goes, the picture of untrammeled womanhood. Naismith also made time for Sandra Berenson Abbott, the director of physical education at Smith College, to learn about basketball. Berenson wrote the initial rules for women's basketball, the six on a side, only three permitted to cross center court, and organized the first women's collegiate game on March 21, 1893. Balmer does a fine job organically linking the emergence of organized team sports and growth to American society's major socio-political dynamics. His religious metaphor, on the other hand, and his subtitle's implication of religion shaping of American sports, well, that falls a bit flat. 
Regardless, Balmer's concluding chapter, Shut Up and Dribble, to borrow a sports cliché, takes his book to the next level. In it, he does three critical things. He identifies multiple patterns of similarity between sports and religious practice. He quotes A. Bartlett Giamatti about the major way in which sports and religion seemingly merge in American society. And he identifies the key reasons men are so passionate about sports. The similarities between sports and religion in American society occur, well, they occur within the context of declining church attendance and, as we noted at the beginning of this section, the ever-burgeoning sports participation and attendance. Regarding participation, just in Erie alone, two clergymen who are friends of mine noted the phenomena of empty or nearly empty churches on Sunday morning while both the stadium and other venues were crowded with families at youth sporting activities. Balmer himself notes the pastor of the Eastlake Washington Community Church adjusting its schedule to accommodate Seattle Seahawks games. If sports are crowding religion out of the public square, what characteristics do they share in common with religion that people find appealing? Well, Balmer details several. First, both are premised on an agreement in principle, although many may disagree on interpretation. For sports, it's a set of rules. For a religion, the agreement might be Islam's five pillars, Buddhism's four noble truths, and Christianity's Nicene Creed. Second, both have sacred text. Sports has rule books. Religion has, well, for example, the Hebrew Bible, the Quran, and the New Testament. Third, they both have sacred spaces, various shrines and temples, and for sports, venerable arenas. Fourth, ritual is associated with both. Balmer compares teams entering a stadium or arena to liturgical processions. At a recent Cleveland Cavaliers game I attended, the player introductions smacked of a pagan religious ritual. Fifth, sports fans and religious adherents both resort to prayer and use devotional aids, such as Pittsburgh Steelers fans' terrible towels. Sixth, both have authority figures, the referee and the clergy. Lastly, the language of each sometimes overlaps, such as Franco Harris's immaculate reception. Quite frankly, although the comparisons are interesting, I didn't find them compelling. In fact, Balmer's comparison of the penalty box in ice hockey to a Roman Catholic confessional strikes me as, mm, what's the phrase, uh, a bit too much. A stronger comparison would have been to Puritan public shaming, either in front of the congregation or in the pillory stocks on the village green. But, using two stunning quotations from A. Bartlett Giamatti, a professor of English Renaissance literature, former president of Yale University, and former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Balmer pegs the essence. The first quote gets at the sometimes religious tone, by which I mean ceremonial, ritualistic, and incantatory surrounding sporting events. As Giamatti says, if there is a truly religious quality to sport, then it lies first in the intensity of devotion brought by the true believer or fan. And it consists 
Second, and much more so, in the widely shared binding nature of the creed-like quality of American sports. The key word is creed. People want to believe in something. People want to find some commonality with their neighbor. People want the world to make sense. Sports is one place amidst the turbulence of American society in the third decade of the 21st century where people can find something to believe in, uniting them with their fellow citizens. As Balmer says, the vernacular of sports provides a common vocabulary, especially at a time when the centrifugal forces of race, ethnicity, religion, economics, media, and politics are tearing us apart. Sports, then, fulfill a gap in society. Quoting Giamatti again, Sports fill that gap in society because no single formal religion can embrace a people who hold so many faiths, including no particular formal faith at all. Sports and politics are the civil surrogate for a people ever in quest for a covenant, which in part explains the powerful attraction sports has for men in our current society. As the role of men has shifted under the impact of technology, second-wave feminism, and globalization, some men have struggled to find their cultural moorings. Sports provides a refuge, in religious terms, a sanctuary. With its clear rules and precise parameters, with its inherent meritocracy, sports might be the purest example of a meritocracy in our culture. Hard work and talent prevail. Sports, as a result, Balmer says, bears at least a family resemblance to religion, provides a respite, an alternative universe to a world that seems unfair and out of balance. I think Balmer's right, that he's on to something. Because, in addition to all of the things we've just noted, the rise of organized sports in America, which began as a middle and upper middle class phenomenon, quickly confounded the intentions and aspirations of its founders by functioning as an engine for social change, especially on matters of race and ethnicity. In fact, Balmer notes, another way that sports has eclipsed traditional expressions of religion is in the realm of moral clarity and leadership. Frequently, today it is sports figures who speak out for social justice, while religious figures advocate for narrow sectarian views. Palmer does not develop the idea that sports eclipsed its origins and took on a life of its own transforming American culture. But I'm going to make it a new locus of interest for the American Tapestry Project. Beginning with the April episode, we'll examine how sport, not the churches, not schools, not government, generated that change of which Sam Cooke sang. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know How sport transformed American society by integrating minorities into baseball, football, and basketball. We'll examine how sport has redefined notions of womanhood and female identity, making a profit of Aretha Franklin's.
And as Neil Diamond sang, We'll explore how sport assimilated immigrants into the American grain first in baseball, then in other sports. While hardly a level playing field, sport, in fact, is the great social leveler providing opportunity for all. This happened not out of any sense of justice, or not only out of any sense of social justice, but out of a mixture of motives in pursuit of victory. In pursuit of victory, Sports in American society became one of the prime engines, perhaps the prime engine, in the American Tapestry Project's protean stories, the inclusive stories, ever-expanding definition of the we, in We the People. So, voting rights as a key to becoming more fully an American citizen, and sports in America as an engine of social progress. They might seem an odd couple, but they are critical to America realizing its full potential as a society of, by, and for the people. Next month, our first look at Americans and their games, sports in American history and culture. The American Tapestry, rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Remember, past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at roth at jeserie.org. Thank you. <laughs>